0: The first of my posts to the Facebook group on Part 3, Book 2, Chapters 5 through 9, was a focused summary of the chapters. First, we see the convalescing Simordan. Recovering from fevered illness, he is also feeling the fevered joy of reunion with the person he holds dearest in the world, the child of his mind, his beloved pupil, Govan. And after all these years he has not just found him, but found him triumphant. Gauvin is formidable and bold, a hero for the people, a pillar of the Republic. Simordan abandons himself to an unbounded reverie, imagining Gauvin on a dazzling ascent to glory, until he could see Gauvin on the ocean, driving away the English, on the Rhine chastising the northern kings, in the Pyrenees pushing back Spain, in the Alps Signaling Rome to arise, but this dream is cut short when he overhears the conversation between Gauvin and the man who tried to kill him. Consistent with his reputation for being firm in battle and soft afterward, Govan grants pardon to his attacker. With a sinister dejection, what a potent phrase, Simordan murmurs acknowledgment of his fears. It's true he's merciful. The intensity of Simordan's love for Govan, the responsibility with which he has been charged, and the evidence of Govan's weakness all taken together portend disaster. Then we see the convalescing mother. Her breast has healed, but her heart is bleeding. Her recovery means little to her without knowledge of her children and the strength to go after them. The suffering mother's desperate longing for her children fills Telmark with doubt and remorse. He asks himself why he saved Lantanac, answers, because he's a man, and then falls back into doubt again, asking himself, am I sure of that? He sees anger in the mother and regards it as right, for he who saves the wolf kills the lamb. Consumed by her own fixed idea, her determination to find her children, Michelle Flechard fills her time with meaningless occupations, waiting to regain her health and muttering her children's names. Then, one evening, her strength sufficiently recovered, she silently walks away. Meanwhile, in the Civil War, a singular complication has arisen. The Republic has gained the upper hand. But which Republic? The implacable or the conciliatory? The one that would vanquish by terror or the one that would vanquish by gentleness? The strength of mercilessness or the strength of pity? The black light or the white light? The Republic of fear or the Republic of harmony? The axe or the sword? Simordan or Govan. Such a deep and ominous question for the revolution and for the characters in this novel who animate it. We then return to the mother, on her arduous journey, walking for days and nights at a time, aimlessly, her feet bleeding, eating little more than grass, sleeping without shelter in the rain and wind, asking anyone who will listen about her children. She learns that they are being held in the torg, and though she is told there is fighting there, she walks straight toward it. We are not told in which direction she turns, but we know that at least in spirit, she turns left. And in the last chapter of this assignment, we, the readers, arrive at the torg and are given a tour. Here are the essentials of the description. The imposing figure of the torg stands at the edge of the deep woods next to a high plateau. On the left a tall, round tower, with walls fifteen feet thick scarred by cannon shots, a spiral staircase connecting its six floors, and a breach exploded by a mine that allows entrance to the first floor room. On the opposite side of the tower's breach, a stone bridge with three arches supporting a three-story castle building. On the first story, a guard room. On the second, a library. And on the third, a hayloft. Connecting the castle bridge to the plateau, a drawbridge. Connecting the castle to the tower, a heavy, locked iron door. If you visit the Facebook page, you can see a stylized rendition of the Torg by none other than Victor Hugo. Epic events will happen here. The second of my posts to the Facebook group was titled, A Poetic Connection, The Woodspurge." A scene from this section called to mind a poem by Dante Gabriel Rossetti. Let me read it to you, and then I'll explain why. The wood spurge. The wind flapped loose, the wind was still, shaken out dead from tree and hill. I had walked on at the wind's will. I sat now, for the wind was still. Between my knees my forehead was, my lips, drawn in, said not alas. My hair was over in the grass, my naked ears Heard the day pass my eyes wide open had the run of some ten weeds to fix upon among those few out of the sun the wood spurge flowered three cups in one from perfect grief there need not be wisdom or even memory one thing then learnt remains to me the wood spurge has a cup of three. Allow me to help translate this poem. What does it present? A wind that blows and then completely stills, deadened. A man who had been walking, pausing as the wind pauses, and sitting down on the ground, his head between his knees. His lips are drawn in and silent. His head is hung so that his hair mingles with the grass. His ears are naked, uncovered by his knees, allowing him to take in the world that moves around him. But he is not taking it in. He is not engaged with it. His eyes are wide, but narrowly focused, seeing nothing but the weeds that take up the whole of the limited sight allowed him, given his posture. Then we have a more abstract statement that this was a moment of grief, but that what is recalled is not the grief itself, nor any abstract philosophic reflection on grief, but instead an arbitrary, meaningless, simple, concrete observation that the woodspurge forms three flowers. We have in this poem an intensely powerful concretized portrait of one aspect of grieving. Rossetti describes the feeling of being dazed, unfocused, numb, unconscious of the world that passes by in its normal course of activity, capable of no real thought and not even any distinct emotion, with the ability to do nothing more than passively note what is immediately before you. Without mentioning anything abstractly about what it feels like to grieve, I think Rossetti has presented a forceful image of the nature of grief. The Wood Spurge does not preach about grief. It communicates what it feels like to suffer the poet's grief. I thought of this poem in connection to Michelle Flachard. Hugo writes, She spent long hours at the foot of the old tree, in a state of stupefaction. She thought and said nothing. Silence offers a kind of shelter to simple souls that have undergone the sinister deepening of sorrow. She seemed to give up all effort to understand. There is a stage at which despair becomes unintelligible to the person who feels it. From perfect grief there need not be wisdom or even memory. One thing, then learnt, remains to me. The Woodspurge has a cup of three. The last of my posts to the Facebook group was for favorites. But feeling there were too many to choose from, and having already inundated you with my responses to this section, I decided to confine myself to a single one. It must be delightful to feel a pink little mouth drawing your soul from your body, and making a life for itself with your life. I found an image by French artist Hugues Meur, who has been compared to Bouguereau, to go along with this quote. If you visit the Facebook group, you can see it yourself. And I still want to hear your favorites.